you know, the, the criticism is stepping up, justifiably so, because Ukraine has failed. It's counteroffensive. It is a complete, utter failure. So, you know, there's really nothing more to be said. He can challenge everybody to come fight on, you know, fight in lieu of the Ukrainians. There'd be some justice in that, perhaps, that some of the very people who've been inciting Ukraine into this counteroffensive would have to themselves uh, be put at risk. Uh, you know, that might prevent them in the future from wanting to put other people at risk so so readily. When I read this, I thought, ah, they're, they're coming to reality. But when you see the other interview that Zelensky gave to the media, he said that Ukraine needs more than 160 additional F-16s to yeah. dominate the air. Is that based on reality? Yeah. No. They Number one, it wouldn't... If they had a thousand F-16s, it doesn't, you know, you can have the planes. Who's going to fly them? You know, the they can't just, you know, you know, wave a magic wand and out of uh, a bunch of uh, Easter eggs will pop uh, capable pilots. It just doesn't work that way. So you've got to get people who are trained, who can speak English, who can then spend six months minimum learning how to fly and operate this combat aircraft in a variety of uh, scenarios. And even then, throw them back into theater where they're up against the world's most sophisticated air defense system and they get shot down. It is, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. It's just uh, not, you know, it makes no sense. These trainings are concentrated in the U.S. They are training Ukrainians in different countries, like those trainings in 11 countries, they were training Ukrainians. How, how do they carry out these trainings? Well, see, the, the, let, let's go back to World War II. One of the advantages that the Soviet Union had and that the America had, America was protected by two oceans. So we could round up, you know, two, three million men, send them to military training camps where they could train unmolested. They were not facing the risk of being attacked. Similarly, in World War II, the Soviets were able to put training camps behind the Ural Mountains, so they were effectively out of the reach of any weapon system that uh, the Germans had, so that they also could train their troops unmolested. Ukraine can't do that. There is not a single military base in Western Ukraine where they could assemble troops and train them without the risk of them being attacked by Russian missiles. So that means they have to go to other countries. Well, Poland is, uh, you know, going to be training in Poland. You're going to be trained by Polish military officers, France, French officers, German, German officers, England, English officers, Italy. So every single country has its own approach to training. So the goal normally in military training is this concept of uniform. They wear uniforms so that they all can be identified as part of a unit. And uniformity in training means that you're if you're going to one camp, you're going to get the same training as at another camp. Well, you're not getting uniformity simply because of both the language differences, the cultural differences. Germany is different from France is different from Poland, is different from the Czech Republic, is different from Italy. So 
you don't have a real commonality of training. And the kind of training and expectations that the Ukrainian troops will receive in, say, the United Kingdom is going to be quite different from that which they get in Germany or Poland. So when they come back together, you don't have a cohesion. All of these different brigades, they don't fit together because they can really come at it from uh, different perspectives. So th the lack of training there is, is really a critical factor. And they, they keep touting, NATO touts it, oh, they've been trained in over 40 different locations. Well, that to me is, that's a recipe there for disaster. They ought to be trained at one location with one standard, and then you have an idea of what you're getting. But now you get, you know, 40 different, you know, uh, 40 different ways to be trained and 40 different potential outcomes. If everything goes the way they want it to be, let's assume that they're going to get the best training possible. How they can fight Russians? Because these aircraft are 50 years old. Are these aircrafts going to outmaneuver the advanced Russian systems? No, they're not. That's, uh, that's the problem. Even Look, even the most advanced U.S. combat aircraft, the fifth generation, F-35s, they're not going to outmaneuver the Russian air defense. The Russian air defense system is superior to anything that the West has, and all of our so-called stealth technologies are actually quite vulnerable to them. So it's 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 a hard lesson that NATO's learning. They 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 designed weapon systems without taking into account the kind of actual opposition or defense systems that they would face. This article in Newsweek, Ben Hodges is suggesting mm. that they have to isolate the Crimean Peninsula. It's ignorance. I mean, just that kind of stupidity on the part of Hodges, it's shocking that he became a four-star general because he's ignoring the history. Uh, Crimea operated quite well and quite independently without the Kerch Bridge because there are things called boats and ferries <laughs> that are able to traverse the Black Sea and to come to come from Russian mainland to uh, Crimea and to provide whatever goods and services they need. So it's just, it's foolishness on his part. It, it, it really is, just reflects a, a gross ignorance about the situation on the ground. The other important thing in this war in Ukraine was the role of these drones. Putin yesterday was talking about Russia may even need a million drone specialists. How do you see right. the role of these drones in this war in Ukraine? Well, it, it is, it's a, you know, this is a game changer. You know, that term has been thrown around quite a bit, but, and I think in, inappropriately in many cases. But, the, the two fundamental changes um, with respect to this war, what makes it different, uh, is one, the use of drones and long-range fires with missiles like the Iskander and the Caliber. Uh, that gives uh, Russia to the um, immediate ISR, Intelligence Surveillance Reconnaissance, they can literally track on the battlefield movements of troops and vehicles, concentrations. Uh, they can see through the dark. They can uh, see through the clouds at times uh, if they're properly equipped with uh, with the infrared systems. So uh, it's now not, you know, in World War II, 
you, you hoped that you'd get an airplane into the air that could fly out and keep track of who was assembling and where. But, you know, th those airplanes could stay up only for a couple hours. The drones can stay stay up for, you know, 24 hours in some cases. So the drones make a dramatic difference, both in terms of collecting intelligence as well as providing attack capability on, on specific targets. Uh, Russia's far ahead of Ukraine in terms of uh, its use of drones. Uh, the second factor is the electronic warfare capability of Russia, much superior over that of Ukraine, when that electronic warfare capability has been used, in fact, to defeat drones and other weapons systems the West has supplied Ukraine with. Uh, so, you know, th those two things coupled with the combined arms that uh, Russia is much more adept at integrating its ground forces with its air forces, with artillery, with tanks, that all the various components, think of it like an orchestra. Uh, and you've got you've got the clarinets and you've got the trumpets and you, uh, you know, you have the violins and the cellos. But they're all often separate areas. When you bring them together and have them work in concert, that's what combined war is. And that's what Russia is doing, again, much more effectively than Ukraine. We learned that Ukrainians are attacking some Russian regions and using these drones. Why, if, yeah. they're, if they're capable of doing that, why they're not attacking the Russian army? Well, the, the, they've got limited capability. The, the the use of the drones against these civilian targets in Russia, I think, uh, it, it's predicated on a false assumption that's been advanced by both British and U.S. intelligence. The assumption is this. If we attack civilian targets in the Donbass and in mainland Russia, and we can expose Putin as weak, as unable to protect Russia and the Russian people, Therefore, that will increase political opposition to Putin and lead to his demise, his overthrow. What's so crazy about that is, you know, number one, these kinds of drone attacks, they're not killing anybody. They're causing very minimal damage. Uh, so it's not producing that kind of outrage. If anything, it's producing, it's unifying the Russian people, making them more angry and, and, and unwilling to, uh, negotiate with Ukraine on any issue. Uh, secondly, let's just assume that that you know that assumption was correct, that it did force uh, an ouster of Vladimir Putin. Who believes that that would bring in someone more accommodating of the West, someone more willing to surrender to the Ukrainians? It's going to be just the opposite. You're going to get somebody who's uh, more a bigger hardliner than Putin, and maybe a quicker finger on the trigger willing to use nukes right off the bat. So it's just, it's it's a it's a bizarre, crazy strategy at this point. And it's really, I think, uh, working against Ukraine's interests. But it's a sign of their de desperation. We talk about this strategy, this agenda in the West, in the U.S., and we go back to the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union, and talk about the Wolfowitz Doctrine. How do you see this doctrine, so-called Wolfowitz Doctrine, and its importance so, in what's going on? His name was Paul Wolfowitz. Believe it or not, I know Paul. <laughs> um, my, my son 
and his son were in high school together. And I actually on occasion sat next to Paul Wolfowitz at uh, some of the high school football games. So I know him. Uh, Wolfowitz is one of the leading neocon voices. He was the one that insisted that you could bring, if we overthrew Saddam Hussein, that would bring democracy into the Middle East. So the neocons have no logical consistency to their thinking. On the one hand, they like to portray Russia and the, and the current uh, version under under Putin as Putin is a reincarnation of Stalin. He is hell-bent on recreating the Soviet empire, the global empire, the Russian, the Soviet Russian dominance of the world. Now, that, that one is a complete misreading of history. It ignores the fact that even under Stalin, the and then under Khrushchev and you know the and his successors, that while the Soviet Union supported insurgencies, anti-colonial insurgencies around the world, the the Soviets were not setting up hundreds of military bases and deploying tens of thousands of troops to those overseas bases. Uh, the reality is neither Russia nor the Soviets have ever been an imperial colonial power in terms of going out and trying to conquer territories in Asia, Africa, Latin America. Uh, they've been content to trying to manage their own borders because it's such, such a mess. Um, so on the one hand, the neocons present Russia as this imperial power that we've got to stop. On the other hand, they describe Russia as weak, its military as incompetent, filled with conscripts, poorly trained, poorly led, poorly equipped, using outdated equipment, unable to supply its troops on the front line. I mean, you just go down the list. So it's like, so which is it? Are they this imperial power? They're going to dominate the world, or are they a bunch of incompetents that uh, can't line up a three-car funeral? And so it's it's that kind of both I'll call it extremist views that ignore what is the reality in Russia, which is it's neither of those. It is Russia is a modern country that has come out of a horrific collapse. Uh, starting in 1991, and has recreated itself as a thoroughly modern state. Its cities are pristine in comparison to the shitholes that are now dotting the, the landscape of the United States, whether we're talking Los Angeles or San Francisco or Chicago or Philadelphia or Washington, D.C. or New York City. I mean, just go down the list. It's uh, the United States what used to be the grand cities of America are just rife with crime and homelessness. So you don't have that in Russia, not at all. Uh, and then the United States has basically lost its industrial base. It no longer has the ability to t flip a switch and start churning out uh, uh, tens of thousands of tanks and airplanes and automobiles and uh, other vehicles. Russia does. Uh, Russia has just produced its own jet without relying upon uh, foreign parts. 
So uh, the United States is completely out of touch with the reality that is Russia. And that's what's dangerous, because when you when you miscalculate, underestimate your enemy, uh, that's when the bad things can happen to you. Why did the end of the Cold War not initiate a lasting peace? Because we had a tremendous opportunity for a for peace after after this yeah. after the Cold yeah. War. If uh, if the leadership, you know, it was then uh, George uh, H. W. Bush and then Clinton, if they had had the vision of Abraham Lincoln in terms of his desire, Lincoln at the end of the Civil War you know, delivered the speech with malice towards none, with charity towards all. And in other words, trying to reconcile the Civil War, uh, the United States decided that they were going to punish Russia. And and in part of it, too, was they still needed the threat of Russia, even if it wasn't a real threat, but at least to describe it as a potential threat to be worried about in order to justify growing defense budgets. Because once Russia collapsed, the whole reason for being the Rosson debt for um, NATO had disappeared. They, they would have had to look for a new enemy, which they did. They kept trying to find a new one. Uh, so now I'll jump ahead. So we're now 32 years uh, since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And now they're finding that Russia's the enemy and China's the enemy, and the United States is completely ill-equipped to deal with either. In your opinion, when, when Putin took power after Yeltsin, we know he revised all the Russian policy, foreign mm-hmm. policy, internal, external policies. What was what was wrong with those policies that, that the West was never happy with, with Putin? Well, because the West had aligned themselves with the oligarchs that were robbing Russia blind. They were stealing resources. They were stealing wealth. The the wealth, when you realize what a vast resource Russia contains, you know, oil, gas, aluminum, nickel, gold, uranium, other rare earth minerals, you know, it does it's not just confined to one area, that the West was eager to devour it for itself. And in selling off many of those uh, products, that the money was not being invested in Russia to build infrastructure, uh, to create factories, to build jobs. It was it was being taken overseas. So that's when 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 Putin finally took over, he realized these oligarchs were working to destroy Russia and were manipulating the political process so that they could en- enrich themselves. And he put a stop to it. No. Well, that then also hurt those Americans who had climbed on board the what I call the rape Russia train. They were literally raping Russia of its resources. And we sort of seen the outcome of what if that policy would have been allowed to run unchecked, Russia would have become what Ukraine is right now. Because let's recall Ukraine is like the fifth best country in the world in terms of natural resources. And it was had a massive industrial capability. But it's been it's been savaged, ravaged by foreigners and allowed people like Hunter Biden and Kofor Black, a former CIA officer who was on the board of Burisma, 
they've gotten they've gotten into the wealth of Ukraine and and use it to enrich themselves. So that's what that's I think that is really the, the fundamental issue at the foundation of the hatred of the West towards Putin. He didn't let them rape Russia. One of the main reasons of this war in Ukraine is this NATO expansion. We remember mm-hmm. once Putin suggested to NATO, if you're afraid of Russia, why you why you're not letting Russia in NATO? Yeah. Why they didn't do that, in your opinion? Well, the, the two reasons. Again, once you let Russia in, then the entire reason, rationale for NATO disappears. Why do you need NATO? You don't. And so uh, if they let Russia in, it would have been an acknowledgement that uh, NATO's mission was over. And frankly, you need NATO in order to justify a lot of the defense spending that takes place in the United States and throughout Europe, because it has to supply uh, tanks and aircraft and artillery pieces and ammunition of of different varieties. So if they would have allowed Russia in, it would have brought all that to an end. So uh, really, they needed to keep Russia out so they could justify building up NATO. And But yet the expansion, the reason for the expansion is that the NATO, the founding NATO members did not have large enough military forces, and they did not have the wherewithal to recruit and build up their own national armies. So therefore, it was easier to go out and bring in other countries who would have their own troops, and that would be counted as part of the NATO force. When this war started, I remember in the mainstream media, they were all talking about Putin. This is Putin's war. Yeah, they they obviously have not read uh, the commentary of Medvedev. You know, Medvedev is an extreme hardliner. He's saying saying things that sound uh, very bellicose and belligerent, unlike Putin. So... Uh, you know, the, 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 I mean, this is, look, the way the United States works is we've got to personalize uh, our conflicts. We, we It's the Hollywood mentality. If you go to Hollywood and you said, hey, I've got I've got a terrific idea for a movie. The first question out of their mouth is, who's the villain? Because you've got to have a villain that will be a uh, an antagonist to the protagonist, somebody to interact with it, it justifies what you do. Well, so look at the history of the United States. You know, we we personalized the battle against the Nazis as Hitler. And in fact, it, it was the overall structure of the Nazi party and all of the other enablers beyond Hitler, the, the Gerings and uh, the Goebbels and, and, and the different generals and the Wehrmacht that were enablers of that. And then the literally millions of German soldiers and then civil servants who helped run the concentration camps and the transportation. So, you know, it's very silly and immature to personalize it to one person. But we did the same with the the Soviets. It was Stalin. Then it was Khrushchev. Uh, Hey, how about Saddam Hussein? Oh, Saddam, we got to get him. And, uh, Osama bin Laden, let's not forget him. Uh, Manuel Noriega. So, you know, it's just, it, it's how the United States operates. It's a cultural thing that we have to find the villain that can be put on the front page of the newspaper 
that can then explain to an unintelligent public who's not willing to do the reading uh, that uh, that's who we're fighting in order to galvanize support. One of the very famous questions that the mainstream media was asking Trump during his term, they were asking Trump, do you think Putin is a child killer? And he was he was so conservative in answering those questions. But when Biden took office, right after the election, he said, I, I remember CNN was, CNN, MSNBC, one of them was interviewing Biden. He, he asked Biden, do you think that Putin is a child killer? He said, yes, he is. How you can have somebody as a president and calling the president of a superpower as a child, child killer and you want to negotiate with him? I mean, the reason they use that kind of language is to prevent any kind of negotiation. That's the purpose. I mean, if there really was evidence, yeah, naturally you would not want to have any kind of interaction, but that's, you know, that that's not the case. Uh, so the, the hypocrisy of the United States on this is just breathtaking. If we genuinely believed that Putin and Russia were evil, one, we should terminate all interaction with the Russians with respect to the International Space Station. Well, we're not doing that. Two, we should stop buying uranium from Russia. You know, go find it elsewhere. Well, we're not doing that. So it's it's just like when it's convenient for us, or like, and it was also it was okay for Bill Clinton to go to Russia and get a get a hefty uh, speaker's fee from uh, you know Russian politicians. But oh my God, if Michael Flynn tried such a thing, it was you know a criminal act. So that it's just uh, this lack of inconsistency and the hypocrisy, and part of the reason for using describing Putin in such stark terms and making claims that Russia is interfering with our elections. It, it all has the purpose of preventing any kind of dialogue or negotiation, which would make it possible to bring an end to the conflicts. Who runs the policy of the mainstream media? Because they were asking over and over this question about Putin. He's a KGB agent. That vision or image of the KGB as killers, is that's, that's Western mythology. It's not true. Uh, the KGB, you know, Putin was a KGB officer. He was an intelligence officer. His job was to recruit foreigners, to find Americans that he could, could persuade to betray America and to give Russia secrets. Similarly, we've got, you know, intelligence officers that work for the CIA. They're called case officers. And their job is just the is the same as Vladimir Putin, except in that case, their job is to find people like Putin that they can persuade to give us the Russian secrets and betray Russia. So there's there are these kinds of intelligence organizations throughout the world. The United States likes to popularize the mythology that you know Russia is a bunch of killer KGB murdering thugs. No, that's it is. Uh, it, it's part of a you know a psychological operation designed to just create a predisposition among the American public that you'd never under any circumstances have anything to do with the KGB officer. Whereas someone like Putin is is proved he's he's proven himself to be a very very cool customer, not not someone to violently fly off the handle. Uh, 
there's some fascinating video of him in his first days when he was, you know, 23 years younger, uh, when he was meeting with some factory uh, owners. And, boy, he he talked very tough and direct to them, uh, setting out expectations about what they were supposed to be doing and, and challenging them over what they were not doing. So, uh, you know, the, Putin has pr- proven to be a remarkable manager. I, I think when the, when the history of the last 50 years is written, uh, I think Putin will go down in history as one of the most, cons- is if not the most consequential leader, one of the most consequential leaders of, uh, of the late 20th and early 21st century.